Today we're talking about Mark chapter 15. This is the penultimate chapter of Mark, and it is absolutely full of content. So let's go ahead and read the word together, and then we'll discuss it. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes for him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the follower of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he is calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, 
Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Jesus was surprised, or Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This chapter is absolutely full of content. We could spend literally hours going through all of the pieces and including all of the scripture that was fulfilled through the events that happened in chapter 15. But we're not going to do that. We're going to sum up some of the more important points of this chapter and talk about them here. This is one of the most important events in the entire history of the world. And I don't say that lightly. And I also don't say that simply being a believer in Jesus himself. The monumental effects of crucifying Jesus of Nazareth on that horrible yet wonderful day 2,000 years ago would have repercussions for the entire world that are still felt today and will continue to be. Let's go through this piece by piece and break it down. First, I want to remind you what is happening here. This is a region of the Roman Empire that is semi-autonomous, but let's make no mistake about it, Rome is in control. Because of that, a man named Pilate has been put as a provincial governor in charge of Judea. That is this region that we call Israel today. His normal place of residence is a town on the coast of the Mediterranean called Caesarea Maritima. But he is in Jerusalem today, meaning in chapter 15, for the Passover. Now, let's set the scene for you. This region is a volatile region, full of insurrectionists, full of angry, desperate peasants, full of people who have revolted time and again in this region for hundreds of years. Pilate is there on purpose. Because this is the Passover week, and literally hundreds of thousands of peasants have uh, swarmed into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, Pilate is there with an entire cohort of soldiers to keep the peace. The centurion that's mentioned here would have been in charge of many of these soldiers. In fact, a Roman cohort would have contained around 600 soldiers. And as we reference here, all of those soldiers have been called out today during the execution of Jesus to keep the peace. That's significant. So what we have is a kangaroo court that happened the night before when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the religious ruling council of the Jews of this era. They ruled from Jerusalem. Many were uh, Sadducees, but there were also Pharisees among them. And they were a body of about 70 uh, men, plus the high priest, who ruled on matters of religious importance. 
Well, they don't have the power to unilaterally uh, murder someone. Uh, they, they could do that through thug action, and we know that happened in Acts. Um, but uh, because it is the Passover, they have to be very careful. They don't do their normal kind of mafioso, uh, you know, killing people in the shadows kind of thing because it could cause a lot of problems with the Romans all there watching them. So they have to be a little bit above board and kind of do this, you know, quote, by the book. But they're not doing anything by the book. They've already held what is an illegal court to um, condemn Jesus as being a blasphemer, um, as being an insurrectionist, all on lies. And because they can't kill him, they must now take him before Pilate, the ruling provisional governor from Rome, and convince Pilate that Jesus is worthy of execution. But make no mistake about it, Pilate doesn't give a rip for their religious beliefs. And he certainly doesn't have the interest in murdering people um, because one faction of the Jews hates another faction. In fact, that will only cause more problems in his eyes. He has to keep the peace. So the way the Sanhedrin is trying to get at him here is to tell uh, Pilate that Jesus is actually committing treason against the Roman Empire. If they can convince Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews, they can say, look, he is claiming that he is more important than Caesar in Rome, your leader. And because of that, by Roman law, he should be executed. And that's exactly what they do. So they bring Jesus before Pilate, who you can read from the text and from history. There's a lot written about Pilate. He was a very uh, bad person. <laughs> um, he was also incompetent. He loses his job a few years from now. Uh, that's a side note, um, because he could not keep the peace, and he was in incredibly corrupt. But he's, but he's also intelligent, and he also really hates the Jews. And that comes out here. So Jesus is brought before Pilate, who, you know, pretty much instantly realizes this is a ridiculous kangaroo court, and the only reason that Jesus is there is because the Sanhedrin is so jealous of him, and they're bitter, and they hate him because of what he is saying. He can tell right away this is a man who has done nothing to really deserve an execution by Rome. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, uh, you can see how he starts to toy with the Sanhedrin themselves. He starts to give it back to them, saying, what is the charge? And they're like, well, he's the king of the Jews. And Jesus goes along with it, and he goes, yes, uh, that, is, that is technically true. But then they heap all of these other charges. Make no mistake, prisoners would have been brought before Pilate uh, many, many times uh, in, in his career. And you can guarantee that they would be begging for their life. Counter, you know, contradicting whatever an accuser might say, saying, Pilate, please, please let me off the hook. They're lying. It was wrong. I'm sorry. Jesus does none of this. And this surprises Pilate. Pilate is like, you're a human. You're on trial for your life. Why don't you defend yourself? And Jesus doesn't. And I think that is absolutely remarkable. And it made a mark on Pilate. He couldn't believe that this man was just letting them do this. The next piece here is this uh, releasing of a prisoner. <clears throat> now, it is not lost on uh, scholars that the, um, the atonement, the day of atonement for, for Jews, and the act of the sacrifice, the once-a-year sacrifice that the high priest would make in the temple to uh, slaughter a, you know, a lamb without blemish, um, to atone for the sins of the Jewish nation for, a, for another year, during that ceremony, there would uh, sometimes be what's called a scapegoat. That is a secondary lamb. 
in which uh, literally all of the sins of the people are actually put onto that lamb, and then he's kind of cast off and he runs off into the wilderness uh, as if he has been released. It is not lost on scholars that Barabbas is the scapegoat. Barabbas, (laughs) the name itself, ironically, son of the father, is an actual murderer. Now again, this cannot be overemphasized how crazy this whole situation is. The Jews have a man on their hands named Barabbas who has been convicted of murder and causing a riot and essentially causing a treasonous insurrection amongst the Jews in a civil war. The Jewish leaders hate Jesus so much and are so bitterly opposed to his message, they are willing to let this Barabbas go and maybe bring hell down on them from the Roman Empire simply because they hate Jesus so much. I think that is absolutely remarkable. And that tells you just how hateful the Jewish leaders were of Jesus in this period, that they were willing to literally risk a civil war and a Roman, you know, complete destruction of their society because they hated Jesus. And I think it's not also lost on us about what happens with the crowd. Remember, just a week earlier, on what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus himself was welcomed to Jerusalem as the savior of the Jewish people. A crowd of perhaps thousands of people came out to worship him and say, Hosanna, which means God save us. And this is our Messiah, and he is going to rescue us. And they laid palm branches in front of him, and they treated him like a king. Oh, what a difference a week makes. For now, even just a couple of days ago, the Sanhedrin were afraid of doing anything to Jesus in the open because of the crowd. Well, look at what has happened now. The, The tide has turned. The crowds, realizing that Jesus is not this military conqueror that they were expecting, who is not going to raise an army to destroy Rome, who is now in shackles and is bound and has been arrested and he has no power, the crowd turns on him, absolutely turns on him, says, you weren't the one we were expecting. We hate you. You fooled us. Now, I I can't emphasize enough either how much a human being can hate someone because they were fooled. You made a fool of us. We thought you were someone you weren't. You lied to us. You pulled our chain. And now we want you to die. And it doesn't take a whole lot for the high priest to stir up that crowd to get him to want to kill Jesus. Now, again, this is not lost on Pilate. He can see this. Um, But look, let's also be honest here. Pilate doesn't give a rip about the Jews. He doesn't give a rip about Jesus. He doesn't give a rip about anyone but his own skin. So he's like, look, I got to kill someone. Someone's going to die today. It might as well be Jesus. So he lets Jesus pay this terrible, terrible price. I think we also get uh, insight into the mind of the Romans during the period. Now, again, the Bible is an excellent historical resource, and we get a lot of insight into how the Roman soldiers acted in their day-to-day lives. Um, Don't be fooled. I don't think any Roman soldier was happy to be posted in Judea in this period. It was a backwater. It was poor. It was hot and dry. The people didn't want them there. There was no luxury really to speak of. The soldiers hated it. And there was not really any war for them to go and get any glory from. Um, 
the soldiers hated being there, and so they're just their worst side of them comes out when um, they're crucifying Jesus and the two robbers. You can see here this whole section that Mark records about what they did. They totally made fun of Jesus, pretending he was the king of the Jews. They pretended to worship him. Of course, we have the, the crown of thorns. They put this robe on him. They are horrible people, <laughs> and, and they are doing horrible things uh, to Jesus and the others. They strike him, um, they, they beat him, and they, and they humiliate him. The next segment is interesting. Now they have, they've, they've done their thing, they've you know, tortured him, uh, beat him, they, they give him the cross, and now they're going to walk him to Golgotha um, to actually undergo the crucifixion. We have this remarkable passage here that Mark says of a certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, it's interesting that the very specific name details were put in here. It suggests that the, uh, the audience for this gospel probably knew these men. And Mark has put it in here because he wanted them to know, look, those guys you know, um, Alexander and Rufus, uh, their guy si Simon, he was the one that carried the cross, and that would have been very important to that community. So that's, that's a nice clue here that the audience would have had some indication of, of knowing these people. <clears throat> we get again uh, Golgotha, an Aramaic a word for the place of the skull. The author translates that because their audience might not know Aramaic. Um, in Latin, it's called Calvary. And then they offer Jesus this drink, wine mixed with myrrh. What is that? Well, uh, in the era, this would have been uh, what essentially had been an analgesic. <clears throat> it would have been something to dull the pain, um, to kind of take an edge off. Jesus refuses it. How remarkable. As if to say, I want to, I have to experience the full brunt of this uh, punishment that my father is going to put on me as essentially the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. And I have to take uh, the full measure. And he does. <clears throat> uh, and then, <laughs> again, the other gospels fill in the pieces here. Pilate actually has a sign that says, the king of the Jews. And it is written in three languages. It is written in Latin, it is written in Aramaic, and it is written in Greek. He wants every single person who walks by that cross during that crucifixion to know that this man is the, quote, king of the Jews. That would have ticked off the sand. And we know it did. We know it totally rubbed the uh, Jewish leaders the wrong way because while they used that charge to get Jesus crucified, they want the world to know, no, 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 this is not the king of the Jews. We have a king and we've had kings, but this man isn't it. This is Pilate being a jerk to the Jewish leadership, saying, fine, you want to call him that? I'm going to tell the whole world. And it was a total uh, sarcastic uh, statement to be put as that charge above Jesus. So that's, that's a very important point here. He hated the Jewish leaders and he wanted to stick it to him for this. <clears throat> We also get insight again into the people who are calling down insults. Remember, Jesus did not perform miracles as magic tricks to prove points to people who had bitter, angry hearts. He just didn't. Herod confronted him. In the other Gospels, we know that Herod confronted Jesus on trial and said, perform a magic, you know, show us that you're the king of the Jews. He wouldn't say anything to Herod. Um, <clears throat> uh, many times during his ministry, Jesus was confronted by these Jewish leaders and others who were angry and bitter, and they just didn't believe 
or want to believe Jesus was who he said he was. So they would say, prove to me, if you're God, make a miracle and do this. And, you know, I have to challenge this audience too. I think many of us have been there as well. When we're angry and bitter and lonely, we lash out at God and say, fine, if you're real, perform this magic trick for me and then I'll believe. Well, here's the problem with that. That Jesus did perform numerous miracles to large crowds that would have certainly been composed both of of new believers, um, non-believers, bitter, angry people, loving, happy people who were receptive to to the gospel, all of these kinds of people. And look, it didn't convert any angry, bitter person um, to being a believer when he performed a miracle. That's not the point of miracles. And so Jesus, again, (laughs) he's getting the same insults he's gotten for the last three years. These people are saying, well, if you're the son of God and you have these powers, call down Elijah, come off the cross and save yourself. He does not perform miracles for people who are angry and bitter like that. And so he didn't. Uh, He didn't do that. He didn't even respond to him as far as we know. And I think that's very uh, interesting. <clears throat> and uh, let me just check my notes here. Um, yep, okay. <clears throat> so uh, now we have the actual death of Jesus that we have uh, come to that moment. <clears throat> and again, we have a lot of symbolism. There is darkness that covers the earth for three hours. Again, <laughs> you know, people who want to try and you know tie these kinds of supernatural events to maybe some kind of natural phenomenon might say well maybe it was a solar eclipse well that would have been impossible as a quick aside passover and thus easter always occur during the first full moon of spring and that explains why you might be confused why easter and passover seem to happen on a different day every year well that's why it's a lunar event based on the lunar calendar and the seasons of the earth. And uh, so this would have been during a full moon. So there's no possible way there could have been a solar eclipse. Um, uh, Solar eclipses happen during new moons. Okay. And then we have this remarkable passage here about Jesus crying out in a loud voice. Again, the author records Jesus' actual saying in Aramaic. And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which Mark translates for his audience, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you might be confused here and say, well, uh, many of those listening said uh, that he's calling Elijah. Why would you say that? Brian, none of this sounds like Elijah. Well, in fact, if you are reading Aramaic, and I think this is why the author has actually put Jesus' literal quote here, it's because the word for God or my God is Eloi, the word for Elijah in Aramaic is Elias. It sounds very similar. Uh, so, either because of scripture in which, uh, you know, of course, Elijah would precede the Messiah, or because they audibly must have misheard what he said, or because they were just being kind of jerks about it, um, they're saying that he's calling down Elijah. <clears throat> and then, of course, we have um, the horrible moment when Jesus actually dies. With a loud cry, he breathed his last. Um, and we know that other events happened. Again, Mark is a slice of an, of an eyewitness testimony or, or a collection of testimonies that happened. The other Gospels fill in many of the, um, the pieces here. Um, but we know uh, that Jesus died on that first day that he was crucified. Um, <clears throat> that is the day before the Sabbath. So that was Friday. <clears throat> now, 
here's where some really crazy stuff happens. <clears throat> First thing that happens is that the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Why did Mark put that in there? And what the heck does that mean? In fact, this is maybe one of the most important events of the entire Bible. I'll say that again. You might be surprised to hear me say that. Uh, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, you might even be amazed I said that. I want to take a quick step back and remind you what the temple of the Jews was in the first century AD. The Jewish temple was the dwelling place of God. It had been so for hundreds of years, and before that, it had been the dwelling place in a tabernacle that is a mobile tent for the Hebrews when they first left Egypt. So, uh, presuming the early date Exodus theory of, you know, somewhere around 1450 BC, <clears throat> from 1450 BC all the way till about 33 AD, save for a, um, a brief period of time where the temple had actually been destroyed after Nebuchadnezzar's uh, era in, in about 586 uh, BC, for about 50 years or so, God himself dwelled within the temple of the Jewish people, his physical and spiritual presence being residing in that place as a central place on earth where God connected heaven and earth together in one place for his chosen people, the Jews. For the Jewish people, this was a hugely important thing. God of the universe who created everything actually dwelled, lived, and of course we know it wasn't the only place he dwelled. He, of course, uh, can you know, spiritually and physically exist anywhere, but that was kind of his, his anchor. It was the place where he said, look, I promise you I will dwell here, and, and my presence will dwell within this temple. And in fact, it dwelled within a central core of the temple that we call the Holy of Holies. Um, before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, it was filled with things like the Ark of the Covenant uh, that you might remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, <clears throat> along with a, a number of other objects. The Ark of the Covenant was God's footstool. And, uh, of course, that probably was not there anymore uh, in this era, uh, but God's presence was. The curtain that's referenced here was a physical separation that separated God's presence from the human presence on earth. Now, you'd be like, why did he dwell there if he wanted to be separate? Because God was holy. And the Holy of Holies tells you exactly what's happening. God's holy and righteous presence dwelled in this core of the temple, which was itself a model of God's palace in heaven, in which his holiness and his, and his perfect purity resided. Um, the Jews were instructed to not defile that purity or, or uh, mix their impurity with God's purity by going into that Holy of Holies, except for the high priest who was allowed to go in essentially once a year. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and there would be other, of course, uh, times when they would go, the high priest would go in there for certain um, you know, uh, issues that they would have to deal with. Um, but essentially that was closed off from the majority of, of everyone else to keep it pure. And then of course there would be these rings or, or divisions of the, the temple itself out from that in which um, different kinds of people could congregate. Long story short, that curtain represented the physical and spiritual separation of God's holiness 
from the rest of humanity who was corrupt and sinful. It also represented, honestly, the separation of the Jewish people being separate from everyone else on earth because they were special. And it separated that specialness, essentially. It was a symbol. That curtain was a symbol that the Jewish people were special and set apart from everyone else on earth, from Gentiles. On that day, when Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, that was the last day that God dwelled in that temple. I'll say that again because it is so earth-shatteringly important to not only the Jews of that era and who lived since, but to all people. God stopped dwelling only in a Jewish temple in 33 AD. And at that moment that Jesus died, Jesus finally took upon him all of the sins of the world that all of those thousands and thousands of animals who had been slaughtered before him could not do. And that is to once and for all take upon him all of the sins of the world, both that had come before and would come after, and they were forgiven. And when that curtain ripped in two from top to bottom, God made this huge statement. First he said, It is done in the sense that I have forgiven the human race who will become or are believers of my son Jesus of their sins. They are being wiped away. The second thing he is doing is saying, my special presence is no longer the purview of just the chosen people of the earth, the Jews. From this day forward, my love and my power and my holiness are for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. And in that remarkable moment, the gospel was physically manifest on this earth into this beautiful event in which God said, that separation that has existed for thousands of years between me and man is now gone. And from that moment on, God's presence would no longer dwell in the temple of the Jews. Now that temple will exist for another 40 years of history, but it will only be an archaeological relic from that point on. In 70 AD, with another civil war on their hands with the Jewish people, the Romans will come and completely destroy that temple, and they will rip it from top to bottom. And Not one stone will not be overturned, and that's exactly what happened today. uh, What is left of that site is the foundations of the temple, not the temple itself, and that is what is referred to as the, uh, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall in Jerusalem today, in which pious Jews still to this day go to that place and kind of worship God there. But God's presence is not dwelling there anymore. And as a Christian, we know where God's presence is dwelling. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the perfect Lamb of God, who has taken your sins upon himself, and you are an active believer that Jesus is who he says he is, I have wonderful news for you. God is now dwelling somewhere else. He's dwelling in you. 
you are a believer in Jesus and God has taken up residence in you. Your, your physical and spiritual body have become his new temple. Praise the Lord and congratulations. And with that, now God can have that intimate connection with every human who calls him God and Father and his son, Jesus, the Messiah. Well, we still have a couple more things to follow up here. Uh, the next here is the remarkable account of the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And guess what, folks? All three of those eyewitness groups are women. This is not a mistake, and this is not an error in writing, and this is not incomplete. The author of Mark and God himself wants the world to know that women are special, and they play a huge role in God's redemptive plan. And I think it is wonderful that this beautiful time in history is recorded and witnessed by women who in that culture and the period would not have even accounted as like being legitimate eyewitness um, you know, testimony in court of law. And yet, the author who is Jewish, we know he must be Jewish, the author of Mark, and God himself, of course, want the world to know, well, guess what? I am going to make the eyewitnesses who you have marginalized people of earth, and I'm going to make those women. And they're going to be the special ones who get to witness this whole thing. They, they witnessed Jesus being buried. They would have witnessed the stone being rolled over the entrance of the tomb to verify that no one could have stolen his body. He was buried. They saw him get prepared, put in that tomb. It wasn't, it wasn't a replacement. It wasn't some guy that, you know, they stole his body away and put another body in the tomb. They saw it all, and they can verify that it actually happened. <clears throat> we have this man, Joseph of Arimathea, his friend Nicodemus, who is probably the Nicodemus who was mentioned earlier uh, in Mark and also the rest of the Gospels. These are secret believers of Jesus who were believers on the Sanhedrin. <laughs> that also can't be overemphasized and how remarkable even that elite core group of Jewish leaders, they had <laughs> spies among them, if you want to think of it that way. They had turncoats among them, men who were, were part of this really kind of terrible group of leaders who were secretly turned and were believers of Jesus. Look at this. Joseph who is named, and again, I'll make the point here, the author is naming Joseph of Arimathea. This would have probably been 20, 30 years after the events. Joseph is probably dead by that point. But I think it's remarkable that he wants you to know there's a specific name, and the audience who was reading probably would have said, oh, Joseph, yeah, of Arimathea, I know, we heard of that guy. He, he puts the name there on purpose to make this um, very specific and very real to the audience. The amount of Spices and herbs, of course, they don't have embalming. Um, they prepare the body uh, was far more than usual. So we, we get the sense that this is a loving and a tender moment that these people who believed that Jesus was their Messiah, they are taking very special care of Jesus' body. They take it down. Jesus dies the first day of the crucifixion. That's also unusual. It might seem weird to you, but there, men could hang on that cross for days um, while they slowly died and begged people to kill them. Um, and that was the whole point. The, the reason that Romans had crucifixion was to slowly torture a person to death as long as possible and to draw it out. Um, <clears throat> Jesus dies 
on the first day, which one means that he was so brutally tortured before he was crucified that the crucifixion was, he was already a dead man. We can believe that he, because he couldn't even carry his cross and Simon of Cyrene had to do it, Jesus was already a dead man. Um, and so, uh, and two, we know that he had to fulfill this um, <clears throat> scripture and prophecy to die uh, here uh, so that he could rise again in three days. Uh, the robbers referred to here, um, yes, that is a very harsh punishment for what would just be considered robbery. Again, many things. They could have been convicted of other things we don't know about. Um, we also know the Romans were very brutal and they didn't really care about the rights of the Judeans. They had no problem crucifying him. Um, if Jesus had been a Roman citizen, he could not have been crucified, but these are not Roman citizens, so um, this is the punishment. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the whole thing about going out, you know, we know from the other Gospels that the Romans um, stuck a spear in Jesus' side to prove he was dead, and, and we know that blood and water came pouring out, and he didn't move, and, you know, he, he was dead. <clears throat> um, in order to hasten the death, um, they would either be stabbed, uh, you know, to accelerate the blood loss, or um, in this case, uh, the robbers, if, because they probably weren't dead yet, uh, they would, Romans would have just broken their legs. Remember, hanging on a cross, they're trying to raise themselves up to breathe. Uh, breaking their legs would have meant they could not raise their bodies up to uh, breathe anymore, and essentially they suffocate there and die on the cross. A very brutal, very horrible moment. <clears throat> we know from another gospel that one of the robbers uh, essentially gave his life to Jesus. <laughs> Again, uh, this is a remarkable moment. Uh, think about this for a minute. They're hurling insults. They're evil, horrible people uh, dying with Jesus on the cross, and yet something happens in that moment. Something so special and wonderful and supernatural that one of those robbers realizes, just like the centurion, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And, and this, is, this comes from um, the Gospel of Luke in Luke 23. He says that that robber wanted forgiveness for his sins, and what is Jesus' response? Uh, you will be with me today in paradise. Folks, it is never too late <laughs> to, to accept that gift, that wonderful gift that Jesus has for you. And in this case, the robber did, and he was saved. And there's a whole, we'll talk about this in another time, about what all that meant. Um, but he was saved. And that robber, that robber was saved. Um, and he will. And if you are a believer, guess what? Wonderful news. You will meet that robber one day in paradise when we're there together as a family. Well, we have made it almost all of the way through Mark. One more chapter remains, and that is, of course, the most wonderful moment of all, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Join us next time as we read from Mark chapter 16. Mm -hmm.